Good evening. Explosions in Crimea as a new front opens in the war between Ukraine and Russia. Giuliani under investigation in Georgia. The growing threats against women seeking abortions. Remembering the Holocaust and an apology to a brave Indian woman for her stand at the Oscars half a century ago. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Tuesday, August 16th, 2022. In news from the Ukraine-Russia front, huge explosions rocked a temporary Russian ammunition depot in Crimea today in the latest in a series of clandestine Ukrainian assaults against the Black Sea Peninsula. Once a part of Russia, the leadership of the former Soviet Union granted the territory to Ukraine at a time when the Ukraine was a republic within the USSR. In 2014, the Crimea was annexed by Russia in response to a coup in Kyiv that brought a government committed to closer ties with the NATO military alliance. A senior Ukrainian official told the New York Times an elite Ukrainian military unit operating behind enemy lines was responsible for the blasts. In recent weeks, explosions have erupted on the peninsula repeatedly. Last week, a series of blasts at an air base in Crimea destroyed a significant portion of Russian air power in the peninsula, sending beachgoers rushing for cover. Russian forces have continued to barrage Ukrainian offensive positions across hundreds of miles in northern and eastern Ukraine. Meanwhile, a senior Russian diplomat was quoted on Tuesday that any mission undertaken by the United Nations nuclear agency to inspect Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear plant cannot pass through the capital Kyiv as it is too dangerous. On Monday in New York, the U.N. said it had the logistics and security capacity to be able to support any IAEA mission to the Russian-controlled plant from Kyiv. Speaking at the U.N. Security Council, Ukraine's ambassador said the only way to ensure the safety of the nuke plant is for Russia to withdraw. The only way to ultimately remove the nuclear threats stemming from the illegal Russian presence at the nuclear power plant is the withdrawal of the Russian troops and the return of the station to the legitimate control of Ukraine. Repeated shelling inside the plant's complex over the past two weeks has stirred concerns of a nuclear accident. And here in the United States, in Georgia, Fulton County District Attorney's Office informed attorneys for former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani that he's a target of the criminal investigation into possible illegal attempts by then-President Donald Trump and others to interfere in the 2020 general election. Giuliani is an outspoken Trump defender. He could face criminal charges from the investigation by the Fulton County District Attorney. Law enforcement scrutiny of Trump has escalated dramatically. Last week, the FBI searched his Florida home as part of its investigation into whether he took classified records from the White House to Mar-a-Lago. Trump is also facing civil investigations in New York over allegations that his company, the Trump Organization, misled banks and tax authorities about the value of his assets. The Justice Department is investigating the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol by Trump supporters as well as efforts by him and his allies to overturn the election he falsely claimed was stolen. Speaking on a New York radio show on Monday, Giuliani said he'd been serving as Trump's attorney in Georgia. He said... You do this to a lawyer, we don't have America anymore. Earlier Monday, a federal judge said U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham must testify before the special grand jury about phone calls to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and his staff in the weeks following the election. The investigation was sparked by a call between Trump and Raffensperger. Trump suggested that Raffensperger find the votes needed to reverse the narrow loss. Trump suggested that Raffensperger find the votes needed to reverse his narrow loss in the state. 
So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. Trump has denied any wrongdoing and has described his call to Raffensperger as perfect. Meanwhile, in Washington, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi told reporters allegations of secret documents held at Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate were serious enough to prompt a search by the FBI. There are laws against the improper handling of this material. There are laws against that. And the uh, and we have to recognize that the this this information as it is coming across and we we don't we'll know more later is highly classified well above top secret it's about our national security as we are told and we'll see how deeply it goes into that so i think our concern is always to protect and defend but Republican Intelligence Committee ranking member Mike Turner says the DOJ has yet to inform his committee as to the reasons for the search warrant for Trump's home, where nearly a dozen boxes of classified information were removed. If these things rise to the level of national security threats, to which there's an immediate need to enter the residence of a former president, um, the um, uh, you know, perhaps future candidate of president, that the person who is, you know, has run against uh, Garland's uh, boss, uh, you know, that should have a higher level of scrutiny, right? And, but just tell us. Uh, I'm asking the same questions you are, and if there are rational answers for it, then he needs to come to this committee, disclose what the classified information is, disclose what the national security threat is, so that we know. As the investigation into Trump's former administration grow, Two Republicans who've defied the former president are facing primary battles today. Re Wyoming Representative Liz Cheney, Donald Trump's fiercest Republican adversary in Congress, was defeated in a GOP primary today, falling to a rival backed by the former president. The third-term congresswoman lost to Trump-backed Harriet Hagman, who had received a lot of lift from Trump in a state where the former president won by the largest margin during the 2020 campaign. A party once dominated by national security-oriented business-friendly conservatives like Cheney's father, former Vice President Dick Cheney, now belongs to Donald Trump. Animated by his populist appeal and above all his denial of defeat in the 2020 elections. The 56-year-old Republican described Tuesday's outcome as the first step in a much larger fight and said, our work is far from over. Cheney's defeat would have been unthinkable just two years ago. The daughter of a former vice president, she hails from one of the most prominent political families in Wyoming. But after the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol by a mob of Trump supporters, Cheney voted to impeach Trump and made it her primary mission to ensure he never again serves in the Oval Office. Cheney will now be forced from Congress at the end of her third and final term in January, but she's not expected to leave the Capitol quietly. She will continue in her leadership role on the congressional panel investigating the January 6th attack until it dissolves at the end of the year, and she's actively considering a 2024 White House bid as a Republican or Independent, having vowed to do everything in her power to fight Trump's influence in the party. And former judge and constitutional law professor Bill Blum has penned another article in the Progressive magazine, this one titled Mar-a-Lago Raid is Trump's Al Capone Movement. He says, like the infamous mobster who was convicted on tax evasion, Trump may go down for stealing documents instead of his more serious crimes. Bill Blum spoke with the news earlier this week. 
Al Capone was the ringleader of a very wide-ranging and brutal extortion and murder ring. The similarity comes in that when the feds tried to get Al Capone for his most serious offenses, they failed. Eventually, they got him on income tax evasion. It's possible that Trump may well evade responsibility for either his most serious violations in New York or, more importantly, his part in the insurrection, but they could get him on federal records violations, pretty serious ones. But that would be the analogy. And it would be ironic because people really want to see Trump held accountable for the insurrection, just as people wanted to see Al Capone held responsible for the Saturday Night Massacre and other gangland hits. But they may just have to be satisfied for something less exciting, but easier to prove. That's what this search in Mar-a-Lago is raising. Can the feds establish a criminal case against Trump for removing and perhaps altering and refusing to give back records that belong to the United States and perhaps records that relate to nuclear design programs? Very serious records, not just trivial ones. The Rosenbergs were executed for way less. Basically, a scribble on a napkin led to two people being executed. How is he still walking the streets free when uh, much more intense nuclear secrets seem to be at stake? Well, that's what everybody wants to know. And people on the left, or at least many of them, have been asking, what is Merrick Garland doing? Why isn't he acting more aggressively? Well, now it appears that Merrick Garland and the Justice Department are getting their acting gear. And while I wouldn't want to bring the Rosenbergs up to anyone, even Donald Trump, because I think that's one of the great uh, miscarriages of justice in American history, I do want to see everybody held accountable to the rule of law, including, most especially right now, Donald Trump. Why is it Nixon responsible for escalating the war in Vietnam, the Kent State murders, Jackson State murders? You can link all of that to him. The uh, deaths of who knows how many hundreds of thousands, millions, if you count the rise of Pol Pot to the invasion of the United States, and yet he goes down for a third-rate burglary. And the same thing here. How is it that it is so much easier to get these small crimes than to get the big crimes these people commit? That's just it. It is easier to prove the small crimes. And crimes that are committed in the name of U.S. foreign policy are not, for the most part, for the vast majority of instances, considered crimes for purposes of U.S. law. That's a shame, but that's the truth. And we have to deal with that. I like to focus, as I teach constitutional law, on big picture, small picture. So yes, big picture, you just raised some really important questions. Smaller picture, is Donald Trump guilty of these uh, record offenses? It sure seems like there's probable cause to believe that he is guilty. And we'll just have to see whether Merrick Garland moves forward with an indictment, and then we'll put it all to the test and see if the Justice Department can prove a case against Donald Trump beyond a reasonable doubt. Retired judge and constitutional law professor Bill Blum is author of The Mar-a-Lago Raid is Trump's Al Capone Moment in the Progressive Magazine. And snitch culture is alive and well in the attempt by some states to stamp out a woman's right to choose. In Nebraska, a teenager faces felony charges for seeking an abortion based on a subpoena of her social media profile. 
Even apps that collect health information can be used by cops to make arrests, although activists say snitches are the biggest problem facing women trying to get an abortion. The president of the National Institute for Reproductive Health is Andrea Miller. She says numerous states have moved to criminalize abortion, most recently in Idaho, where the Department of Justice has sued to block the state's abortion law as a violation of federal law that protects the life of a mother. The battle between pro- and anti-choice states, she says, is heading to a new phase in every state house, cities, and towns across the nation. She spoke with the news. These are abortion bans, and what that means is that the vast majority of people in those states who might need abortion care will not be able to access that care in their own state in a timely fashion. As a result, what we will see is a real public health crisis, and we're already seeing that emerge. We're seeing that in terms of those who need abortions needing to travel, which is an incredibly difficult and often impossible task when you consider people's resources, their obligations to family and to their jobs and to their communities. It's unconscionable that people are having to travel. Also, of course, is extremely costly and significantly delays care. So that is really the tragedy here. We are seeing a chilling effect when you put a doctor in an unconscionable position of having to choose, do I do what's best for my patient and risk prosecution and jail and massive fines and the loss of my livelihood? Or do I hold back and hope for the best? Are we heading into a situation where you're going to need internal passports and your travel is going to be watched? There's certainly real concern about the ability of people to travel. We're already seeing some of these most conservative states talk about actually trying to prevent people from traveling to obtain abortion care or to penalize them once they've gone out of state to prosecute them or otherwise punish them and also attempting to find ways to punish healthcare providers who provide care to them out of state. We have extremists who have leveraged and twisted some of our systems of government in order to impose extremist opinions of a very small minority. The minority says, and I just read in New York Times 10 minutes ago, we have a right to defend what we say are the values of America, even though we're a minority because the majority are communists. Well, the irony here is that these are the same people who just a few months ago were saying, send this issue back to the people. The Supreme Court shouldn't decide it. We should send it back to the people. Well, now what they're saying is we don't actually want the people to decide because guess what? The people are actually opposed to banning abortion. We are seeing extraordinary things happening. New resources going to beef up the infrastructure of reproductive health care services and abortion care in states where it's legal. Funding for abortion services for those who can't afford it. Funding to support those who need to travel in order to get these services, who need supports like child care. More than half of people who seek abortion care are already parents. Lodging, travel costs, We're seeing that happening in blue states and purple states and red states. We're seeing cities step up. Local officials saying, local district attorneys saying, we will not participate in enforcing this abortion ban because we know it is not good for our community. The fact that we are in this position where that's even a question is shocking and appalling, but it's also a exceedingly motivating, and I do have faith that we're going to turn this around. And a lot of the laws, like snitch culture, you know, getting people to turn people in to get out from under drug persecutions are exactly the laws they're using against abortion now. 
the vast majority of these prosecutions, all these prosecutions to date, and almost everything that we're seeing coming forward now is not based on the law. The laws are only two states where the laws actually criminalize self-managed abortion. Yes, you need to protect yourself because there is a drive toward criminalizing pregnancy and behavior during pregnancy. That is a trend that we had already seen even before the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. So it's really important to keep in mind that the laws that are being used by and large, vast, vast majority of them are not applicable and they should not be used in this context. Doesn't mean that there won't be attempts to do so and those attempts can be very harmful. Remember, you need to maintain your privacy Make sure that you're surrounding yourself with those who you absolutely know you can trust. Andrea Miller is president of the National Exile. She spoke with the news. As the consumer price index has remained unchanged in the past month and payroll is up by half a million, President Biden and Democrats have been taking a victory lap. The unemployment rate is down to a manageable 3.5 percent. But despite the champagne, some economists say the recovery is just a typical opening act to a blooming recession as workers are being shifted from full-time to part-time jobs. Economist Jack Rasmus says small business employment, missed by the media, which fell by 100,000, is a more accurate harbinger. Jobs are a lagging indicator. All of the things, with, you know, respective of the problems with the jobs uh, uh, numbers, they're lagging indicators about six months. Uh, the job numbers turned south always well after it's clear we're, we're heading deeply into a recession. Other things are happening pointing towards a recession. What are some of those things? GDP for the first half of the year, six consecutive uh, months here, has contracted. That's one indicator. The other indicators are that the housing sector is uh, clearly in a recession. Even the home builders say it's in recession now. Another indicator is manufacturing across the country which is broken up into regions, and now these regions are indicating that they're contracting. Not all of them at the same rate. Some of them just slowing down the growth, but others contracting. Because interest rates are going up, inflation is up. Inflation hits uh, business expectations and investment just like it hits consumers, and it hits the small businesses first. And that's why you see this anomaly in the jobs report, because there's really two different surveys in that report. One survey uh, catches uh, the largest corporations, about 400,000 of them. That's called the CES, or Establishment Survey. doesn't catch small and medium businesses very well. The CPS, the Household Survey, which is the result of about 60,000 phone calls a month, picks up smaller businesses. And what you see in the CPS is that total employment is going down by 112,000 last month. Whereas in the CES, the large employers, they're still hiring. Now you've got the 528, but the media only picks up the one that looks good. The 528 doesn't say anything about the negative 112 in the other small business reports. So what you got is small businesses are laying off or even more importantly than laying off, what they're doing, if they're hiring, they're only hiring part-time or they're taking full-timers and they're reducing them to part-time. That's why last month you get this huge number of part-time employment in the CPS household survey of 800,000 jobs. They're hiring part-time and they're laying off full-time and they're moving full-time to part-time. A lot of churn going on down there. A lot of the part-time jobs that are being added at 800,000, in addition, are people taking second and third jobs, 92,000 last month. Second and third jobs. 
the government job stats don't measure people getting jobs. They measure jobs. There's a difference. It's not as if a worker didn't have a job and now 528,000 new of them got a job. No, no, because they could be taking on second jobs. They could be taking on third jobs. And as I said, the number last month was almost 100,000 of those, which means there's part-time job creation going on, particularly in small business. At the same time, full-timers are being cut in Mm -hmm. small business and layoffs are starting to occur in small business, but big businesses are still sort of, you know, chugging along. $7 for a dozen eggs. And why is that? Why is it so high? Is there a shortage of chickens? No, no, because you've got uh, three or four big poultry producers. That's why. And they're controlling the distribution of the egg production. The same thing with bakery goods. You got three to five. Big producers, the same thing with oil and refineries. You've got massive price gouging going on by big monopolistic corporations for the past year. They're getting away with it, and no one's doing anything about it. Jack Rasmus is an economist and an author based in California. And in arts news, author and former zoo administrator Annette Liebskind Berkowitz is a survivor of the Holocaust, who has described her family's harrowing escape from Poland to Central Asia and then back to Poland after the war, onward to Israel, and finally to New York City in a series of memoirs. She was born in Kyrgyzstan, where her family fled the Nazi invasion of Poland and had a three-decade career with the Wildlife Conservation Society in New York. Her most recent book is titled Aftermath and tells how her family dealt with the trauma in the years after the Holocaust. My mother ended up giving birth to my brother in a homeless shelter. When my father arrived the next day, there he was with a wife and two young children, a newborn, and had nowhere to live. As it happened, he ran into an old school friend on the street who said, no problem, you can move in with me and my wife. It turned out that he and his wife had one room. That was the sum total of their space. But they took in a family of four, which was reminiscent of what happens with refugees from Ukraine now. People take families as such a magnanimous act of charity. We couldn't leave. My parents made repeated attempts to leave Poland. You needed an exit permission. In 1957, there was a wave of Jewish immigration to Israel when there was slight political thaw. We left Poland very quickly because my parents were very worried that the visa would be revoked. Continuing anti-Semitism in Poland even after the war? People ask me how I remember Poland, and I know there were beautiful places in Poland, and, and there must have been beautiful sunny days and beautiful forests, but to me it's all gray. Knowing that my entire family was killed in Poland, and I knew this as a child really, because my father was someone who really wanted to tell the story of what happened. And it's my responsibility to pass it on, which is why I write about it. The leap from Israel to the United States, to New York City. Jewish people who were subject to anti-Semitism in Poland, they arrive in Israel, you would think that everything is funky-dory and great. It wasn't great for my father. It was great for my mother. She opened her business. She was a corset maker. And one of her very first clients was the wife of Moshe Dayan. 
the most famous warrior in Israel and the defense minister and so on. And then she right. spread the but word the to famous her friends. So mother, the famous eye Yes, patch. famous eye patch. So you know who he is. But once I learned Hebrew, I fell in love with the place, with the people. It was just so different from our experience in Poland where we were completely alone. We were the only family in a huge apartment building that was Jewish. We lived very sad lives, I think, in many ways. But when we came to Israel, we suddenly had family, and it was a delightful experience for myself and for my brother. However, my father was not happy because he was raised in a Yiddish-speaking household. He thought he could speak his language when he came to Israel. Of course, he was sure he could. But Yiddish was unwelcome in Israel at that time. Things have changed since. But at the time, they thought it was the language of the diaspora. They wanted everybody to speak Hebrew. They were forging a new country. And the worst thing was that he couldn't get a job. He was 47. And at that time, he was considered old. It was a very young country. Had a huge number of young immigrants from all over the world. They were trying to build the country, not with people who were considered over the hill. And then when he learned that his sister, who was an Auschwitz survivor, went from the displaced person camps in Germany to the U.S. and settled in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. She was his only sibling left, and they were very close, and he desperately wanted to see her. How did your family get to New York? Eventually, both the Republican and Democratic senators from Pennsylvania wrote letters to the consulate in Tel Aviv. My brother, my mother and I arrived on the SS Constitution in August of 1959. And what did you think of, you arrived in New York City? My first impression was I was totally overwhelmed. The noise, the, the, <laughs> the numbers of people on the streets, the heights of the buildings, I was freaked out by the sound of the subway it was so noisy. It was, it, it was like being on another planet. And of course, I didn't speak any English. You know, these kind of traumas are what make up a person's uh, personality, uh, the thing that is very much them. How did this affect you for the rest of your adult life? I think it made me stronger. The truism, or well, it doesn't kill you, makes you stronger, holds true here. And then you went on to be a writer? I became a curator at the Bronx Zoo in New York. When I retired 30-some years later, I was the first senior vice president at the Bronx Zoo. And so I had a life in wildlife conservation, participating in exhibition design and uh, creating uh, conservation programs around the world, including negotiating the first ever agreement to bring environmental education to China, I had always wanted to write, and my husband kept suggesting or pressuring me to retire so that I could finally start writing. That's what I did. I started a whole new career, and I published yes. five books. It's a whole new life, and I love it. What's happening in the United States, and are you surprised by recent developments in the United States? We have a lot of fascism in this country, and it's a trend that's... Uh, growing like cancer around the world. It's extremely distressing. Too many young people are just not aware of it. The attack on Salman Rushdie this week 
happens in New York State, by the way. I'm trying to have hope. You have to have hope, actually. Uh, without hope, you, you really can't build the future. But I think we have to do something better and stronger than we're doing now to hang on to democracy in this country and elsewhere in the world, too. Annette Liebskin Berkowitz is the author of six books, the most recent, Aftermath, Coming of Age on Three Continents, a memoir. And finally, some of us are old enough to remember the 1973 Academy Awards when the Best Actor Award went to Marlon Brando for his role of arch-gangster Don Corleone in The Godfather, how he declined the award in protest of the treatment of Native Americans in Hollywood films, and sent a Native woman, Sashim Littlefeather, to make a speech, and how Littlefeather was denied her opportunity, even threatened with arrest. She did make a short statement before having to leave the winner is Marlon Brando in The Godfather. Accepting the award for Marlon Brando and The Godfather, Miss Shashin Littlefeather. My name is Sashin Littlefeather. I'm Apache, and I'm president of the National Native American Affirmative Image Committee. I'm representing Marlon Brando this evening, and he has asked me to tell you in a very long speech, which I cannot share with you presently because of time, but I will be glad to share with the press afterwards that he very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry. Excuse me. And on television, in movie reruns, and also with recent happenings at Wounded Knee. I beg at this time that I have not intruded upon this evening, and that we will, in the future, our hearts and our understandings will meet with love and generosity. Thank you on behalf of Marlon Brando. Nearly 50 years later, the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences apologized to Sashim Littlefeather for the abuse she endured. At the time, she was physically threatened by John Wayne, infamous for playing the role of Western Indian killers in numerous films. The Academy said on Monday it'll host Littlefeather, now 75, for an evening of conversation, healing, and celebration on September 17th. In 1973, Oscars were held during the two-month occupation of Wounded Knee in South Dakota. In the years since, Littlefeather says she's been mocked, discriminated against, and personally attacked for her brief Academy Awards appearance. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, August 16, 2022. The news was written, anchored, and produced by Paul DiRienzo. You can always listen to the news on the Internet at pauldirienzo.com. Paul, D-E-R-I-E-N-Z-O, dot com. The news is also available on Apple Podcasts and many other podcasts available on the Internet.